Can you heal from abuse? What do I do after leaving my narcissist? What does a healthy relationship look like? These concerns cross the minds of over 20 people every minute, over 28,800 people every day. And the sad fact is, we still don't talk about it enough. Healing from emotional abuse isn't a band-aid situation, but it doesn't have to take years either. The lives of millions of other survivors around the world have been impacted by their narcissist. Yours doesn't have to. To show you how to live a free, confident, and peaceful life, your host and founder of the Healing from Emotional Abuse philosophy, Marissa F. Cohen. Welcome back to Breaking Through Our Silence. A couple months ago, there was a news report that hit the U.S. for about 10 minutes about a gang rape in Israel in a lot. And it didn't get a ton of media coverage, but apparently in Israel, it opened up a big to-do about misogyny and the culture, of the rape culture of Israel. So I have the incredible honor of bringing on a friend of mine, Tiferet Salomon. She is a bold, amazing Israeli activist who fights for the change in legislation around rape and rape culture. She'll tell you a little bit more about this, but four years ago, she had a rape attempt and was able to get herself out of the situation. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. She has been fighting to change the legislation and policy in regards to rape drug victims in Israel. Thank you so much for being here, Tiferet. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's my pleasure, Melissa. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So you had an experience, um, a rape attempt. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that's kind of, as you said, what put you on the path to doing what you're doing today. Right. So um, about four years, actually, it's, it's uh, four years ago and uh, two months, to be exact. Um, I was giving a ride to this guy who I met um, through a Facebook group. I was going up north for, um, for the weekend and I posted on a Facebook group for um, rides because Israel is a very small country and the farthest distance you can go is about eight hours from one end to the other. So um, it's very common that people will share rides um, also to they share with the cost and also, um, you know, it's nice to have company. So I wasn't doing an eight hour ride, I was doing a two hour ride, but I posted on a Facebook group, I'm going up north uh, if anyone wants to join. And there were four people who joined me. It was fine. Everything was good. Uh, and then one of them said, I'd actually uh, love to come back to you on, with you on Saturday night um, back to Jerusalem. And I was more than happy to do so. And we just talked the entire ride on the way back. It was just he and I. Um, it was comfortable. I felt very safe and very um, listened to. Now, after the fact, I realized that I felt so safe and listened to is because he was um, listening intently to every single word I said and collecting as much information uh, for me as possible. Um, when we reached uh, Jerusalem, I was supposed to, it was like 12.39, I was supposed to go to a friend's birthday party. It was late though, so I wasn't sure if they're still there or not. And he said, would you like to come up for a, uh, for a bit of refreshments before you go? And I was like, you know what, sure, 15 minutes, it's fine. Uh, as I mentioned, the car ride seemed comfortable and nice, and uh, it seemed that we were actually really connecting. Um, there was no sexual tension at all whatsoever. I have to like make that clear because sometimes people go, oh, maybe there was mixed messages. No, not at all. I was very, very blunt and very clear about the fact that that was not um, where I was at all. It was more just we had a good time talking together. So we went up to his house. His roommate was gone. I took with me my bottle of water just in case I wanted to drink something. 
and I'm standing, uh, we went upstairs, we were standing in the hallway outside, like his bedroom slash the kitchen slash like the bathroom. And he said, uh, let's go up for a smoke. And he asked me, wait, do you want a drink? And I said, no, I'm good. It's like water, coffee, tea. And I was like holding up the bottle in my hand with like a, a bit of a weird face saying, yeah, I bought it with me. Thanks. I'm good. And then he's like, okay, I'll get uh, the tobacco. Cause in Israel, it's very common that people roll cigarettes as opposed to um, buying uh, pre-rolled. And then he started rummaging on his table, on his desk table in his bedroom, which was odd because I noticed on the corner, there was the package of tobacco just sitting there. I'm like, okay, what am I supposed to do while he's doing this? And then I said, you know, fine, I'll go use the bathroom. And so I said, I'm going to go excuse myself. When I came out of the bathroom, he came out from a different room with a different case of tobacco, which again, you know, it's all of these things that you notice after the fact. But in, in advance, I didn't think it was weird because us uh, chain smokers, thank God, are not anymore, but tend to have a lot of tobaccos just lying randomly around the house. So I really didn't think too much of it at the time. Uh, we went up to his roof. He rolled uh, for both of us a cigarette and um, like a single uh, one though. And we started talking. Mostly he was talking. I asked, you know, what he does for a living. Tell me a little bit more about this uh, project you're working on. And as he's talking, I'm smoking. And I noticed at some point that I, I, I like lost train of thought. He was talking about things that made sense. He was telling me about his book. And I would hand him the cigarette at times and he would continue talking. And then each time it, it went down by the time he came to take a puff and then he'd light it again, but then continue talking and then come to take a puff. And again, it was out. So he'd light it and then continue talking. And then he'd just give it back to me. And he wasn't really smoking. Again, things you don't notice in advance, only after the fact. And at some point I noticed though that I can't understand what he's talking about. Not because the words he's saying um, aren't words that make sense, but rather there's no logical connection between a moment ago, he was telling me about the book he's writing, and now he's throwing to me these random words from the field of uh, political science and international relations, which is the field of study that I uh, was um, majoring in at the time in, my, uh, in the university, and I told him about this during the car ride. And he's just throwing, though, these random, like, you know, it's because of the colonialization of the postmodern economic effects, of, and, like, nothing made sense but it was words that were supposedly comfortable for me. And I was trying to focus in and listen to what exactly he's saying and see, okay, maybe I'm just like not following his train of thought. But once I listened more, I realized, yeah, no, there's no logic here. I'm not even sure how long we've been sitting here. And like everything started feeling very um, misty, I would say. And I said, what time is it? And he didn't answer, he continued talking. And he was talking in this very low, calm, uh, monotonic voice. And I said, I think it's late and I should go. And he, again, didn't react, continued talking. He had his train of thought and he was going with it. And I realized, okay, I, I'm, I feel like I'm losing consciousness. I feel like I'm losing grasp of reality and like something was really off. And I was scared that if I stood up and left, um, maybe he would try to stop me because something wasn't adding up and I was starting to recognize, okay, wait, I was the only one smoking. He did, like, all of the things were slowly falling into place. So I slowly got up and I said, you know, I'm going to go. And he said, what? We're having such a nice time. Don't you want to stay? I was like, no, I'm going to head out. And I started slowly walking towards the door, keeping like half of my body turned towards him. 
uh, half towards the stairs because I was scared that if I turned around, he would grab me from behind or um, try to stop me in a way that would cause me to trip over myself on the staircase. Um, so I was walking consciously out while slowly trying to create more distance between us without alarming him by running. And he's like, wait, I have to give you money for the car. I'm like, no, no, it's really fine. It's all good. And I like opened the door and walked out. The second I left the door of his house, I ran to my car, which was parked like at the bottom uh, of the street right around the corner from his building. And I saw him from the corner of my eye running after me. And I ran even faster into the car. I locked the door, started the car and drove away as fast as I possibly could. While I was doing this, I called my mom and I said, mom, I've been drugged. I'm heading to a safe place where I'm going to call an ambulance and going to go to a hospital, meet me there. And as I'm talking to her, I'm, I feel like I'm losing grip on reality. Like everything is fading and everything's blurry. And like, I can feel how I'm fighting to stay awake, stay conscious while I was really feeling like this heavy cloud coming over me and, and trying to like, um, wiped me out completely. And I had to stay with my mom on the phone, actually, in order to drive because I, I, I felt like if I didn't talk out loud, I would lose it right then and there and I was in the middle of the street. So um, I drove to the side. It was about uh, 500 meters away from his house, maybe, uh, maybe um, a kilometer. And I called an ambulance. Now, I have EMT training in my past. I used to volunteer on an ambulance on a regular basis, and um, and like I I know how ambulances are supposed to work. And the ambulance that showed up was horrible. They they didn't want to take me to the uh, hospital. The paramedic, who is the highest uh, ranking official in the ambulance, sat down on the side, lit a cigarette, and started laughing and saying to his friend, "Forget it. She's drunk or crazy." And I'm begging them in tears, telling them, you don't understand. I've been drugged. I need to get to the hospital. And they were just, they thought I was insane. Now, one of the first things that I always taught people when I was teaching them how to, how to volunteer on an ambulance was, you are the first person that someone in need is going to meet. The most important thing you have to do is be there for them. But to imagine how you would want uh, your grandmother to be treated or your parents or you yourself and do that to the patient that you're meeting with. You are the first person who is really going to um, give assistance in, in, in time of real dire need. But the way this team acted was so far from it that I was sure that I concocted in my mind the fact that I actually was able to get out of his house. And I started thinking that I'm actually still at his house and he's raping me, but in order to um, not feel what's going on, I am playing in my mind a safe scenario that I know from my past as an EMT that is trying to overcome the uh, trauma that I'm experiencing live and it's, it's not really happening. Now, they didn't want to take me away to the, ho to the hospital, and this is going on. I ended up like trying to call another ambulance, but there's only one ambulance service, uh, really, that people use in Israel. And I told them, I'm here with the ambulance. They don't want to take me to the hospital. I need them to take me. And so, um, uh, thankfully, the person at the, um, the call center told them, okay, you're there. You're with her. Take her to the hospital. Now, besides this traumatic treatment that I had from their side, they never once mentioned that there's 
a hospital in Jerusalem that actually has a, uh, we call it an acoustic uh, care center. Uh, it's what is used for people who are brought to the hospital with fear of sexual assault of any kind. The staff there also undergoes professional training in how to treat um, sexual assault victims, but also they have legal standing that allows their testimony and their um, tests and the entire process to actually be acceptable in court, which is a very important thing to note. So they never mentioned that the hospital that takes care of that is the one in Ankarim. Instead, they said, yeah, we'll take you to Shaarei Tzedek, which is the one I told my mom to meet me at, and that's also what I was thinking, but I didn't know that there's this alternative and how important it was at the time. And again, I'll remind you, they didn't want to take me to the hospital to begin with. So uh, they brought me to the hospital, and I was the entire car ride, I was like holding on for dear life to not lose consciousness, because again, I was scared that I'm not actually being saved, but rather I'm still um, uh, being attacked. And I needed to see a face I didn't recognize before I, uh, I, I could let go. And I remember the second they brought me into the uh, ICU, I saw a nurse walking over. I'd never seen her before in my life. And that's it. Everything else went dark. That's why I lost consciousness. Um, my mom and cousin apparently were there to meet the ambulance team. They got there already beforehand. And um, my mom acted as my advocate throughout the entire process because I was unconscious for about nine hours. And she told them, we think she's been drugged. We need blood tests and urine tests. And she said, give me the samples. I'll take them to a private lab. Apparently, that's not uh, acceptable either because in order for it to have a legal standing, it has to go through really a lab that is recognized. At the beginning, the doctors were skeptical. They didn't put me in a uh, room to take care or treat me. They rather just left me lying in the hallway with hope that my symptoms would pass because they too thought that I was, you know, drunk or under different kinds of influence. Yeah, so that's overall what really happened to me during this time, which really caused me to be um, much more aware of everything that's going on. Um, there were a lot of mistakes that happened there, also in regards to the way the ambulance conducted itself. As I said, the hospital itself, my mom pleaded and begged with them, please give me the test. They didn't agree. Then they said, we will send them to a uh, different hospital, which is the only hospital in Israel that has a lab that can really check for uh, rape drugs that has legal standing. And they said, okay, we're going to send her blood tests and her urine tests to the, that hospital and, um, and follow up with us. Now, there were policemen who came uh, already before I, I uh, woke up. The second I gave the call, really, for an ambulance, the duty is to alert policemen and have them come to the hospital and uh, collect testimony from the victims. They were standing around waiting for me to return to consciousness. My mom gave them my testimony and they said if she wants to come and open a case, then tell her that uh, we, we already have the complaint filed in and it will be attached to that. And then after I was released from the hospital, I went immediately to file a complaint because um, this is a sad truth in I think most places, but um, in Israel it's known that if you don't give a complaint within the first 24 hours, the chances of it being treated as seriously um, go down in about 70%. There are many cases that people come in only later because of the trauma and uh, fear of dealing with it and the difficulty of, of 
really coming and, and giving testimony of whatever case it is. People many times don't do it immediately, but there have been a lot of cases in which when you actually come within the first 24 hours, it's treated much more seriously and uh, it's given a higher priority. I wouldn't say top priority because uh, unfortunately sexual assault victims aren't top priority, but it's given somewhat more of a higher one. And also there, when I gave testimony, they told me, okay, we need to get your uh, lab results from the um, hospital to really see which drugs were in your system. That's going to be a key part of us continuing with um, looking into your case and what happened here. And uh, we are going to let you know if there's any change or development in your case. And it takes, it, it has two years until it's closed automatically. But they guaranteed me that I'd get updates. Now I have to say for the policeman's credit, the person who interrogated me, who I gave my testimony to was very, very calm, very um, um, sensitive. He was, I was terrified because you hear all these stories of, of uh, policemen or um, people who take witness that accuse you, well, how are you acting? What were you wearing? What was the interactor beforehand? And I was happily surprised that my experience was actually a positive one. And uh, he guaranteed me that they'd be in touch with me. Two weeks later, I called the hospital to see if there was any news in regards to my uh, test results. And I found out that they never sent my blood or urine samples to the hospital that can do the um, more advanced uh, checks, meaning the hospital that I was in does very, very basic toxin um, uh, evaluation in blood and urine. They don't do uh, the more advanced kinds, and they were supposed to send it to this hospital that has the special lab for it, Tel Shomer. That also gives it legal standing and also really has the ability to look for it, and they told me they never did. I called the doctor who was taking care of me in the ICU and I asked what happened, and he said, what are you talking about? I told him to send it, and he was shocked when I told him they didn't. And then he said, one moment, I'm going to check something uh, way down the line. And he calls me back and he says, I I'm sorry, they didn't send it. And I said, but why? You said that we need it. You said that you guys don't have the ability to do it. The police told me that we have to have these results in order to do this. And he said, I know. I told them to. They didn't. I I'm sorry. I don't know why. So this was heartbreaking. I mean, I, I was waiting these two weeks when I was already, you know, pretty much ready to give up on life and hardly getting out of bed at four o'clock in the afternoon. I was waiting for these results and suddenly I find out that they were never sent. That was the beginning, I guess, of what really got me involved in this. Because my tests were never sent, I started looking into it and researching what usually happens? What's the status of rape drug victims in Israel? How are they treated? And I found out that many times the tests aren't even sent to the hospital that needs to have it. As well, not every hospital has an acute room, um, as I mentioned. Jerusalem specifically, we have three hospitals here. So, so actually, like you have a variety and you have a choice to go there if you wanted to. But there are other cities that don't have a hospital that has an acute room at all. And even the hospital that I was in, who doesn't have the, the, the right room to treat me, they were supposed to send my test to Tel Shomer, which is the only hospital that has uh, the lab to check for these kinds of drugs, and they didn't. And that's something that happens in many, many cases. And the more I looked into it, I, um, I found out how common, unfortunately, it is. There was a journalist in, uh, who wanted to really uh, discuss this matter, and she reached out to me. Uh, due to a Facebook post that I wrote seven months later, in which I 
wanted to tell the world what happened to me to raise awareness, to let people know that it's not just something you read about in newspapers that happens on the other side of the world, but it's happening here and it's happening to people you know, and it's happening you know, to an unassuming woman who just gave a ride to a guy and thought that, you know, we're talking and it's all good so we can go have a smoke on his roof without anything happening. And, uh, and that caused, A, a lot of people to also reach out and tell me stories that happened to them, not necessarily about rape drugs, about rape, about sexual assault, about the depression that came after, about trying to deal with life, about the post-trauma that comes up in dates or in interactions. I found that this really opened up a can of worms where people were sharing with me, I was sharing with others, and, um, and I really found out how, unfortunately, common, not that assault is, because that I already know, unfortunately, but the terrible treatment that the system has towards um, victims of sexual assault of all kinds. So through my Facebook posts, I started working also on legislation and policy changes. And we had our first uh, somewhat successful policy change in December 2018, where they released a policy that dictates that the hospitals must treat all victims who show signs of a rape drug according to a specific process and really take the tests that are relevant, send it to the relevant labs, uh, go through everything that's supposed to. In theory, a wonderful policy. Unfortunately, now we're finding out that it's not being implemented as it should. And so now, two years later, I am working on getting the implementation of that policy. But I'm happy to say that in these four years, the policy was written. So that changed. And also hospitals stopped throwing out vape drug kits, which was also a huge, huge achievement that we worked very hard on because I couldn't stand the fact that anyone else would be treated the way I was. So there's still a lot more to go. But um, it's an uphill battle. Things are changing slowly, slowly. But uh, there's a lot to do there. And uh, as time goes on, I just see more and more how lacking the system can be. And when it comes to, to this matter, which I'm sure uh, you know, you come and you're looking for like that lifeline to save you and help you and protect you. And having the system turn their back on you is horrible and it can be even worse than not trying to get help at all so i've been working to change that you brought up so many good points thank you first and foremost for sharing your story um because it is heartbreaking you know when your first line of defense looks at you laughs and pulls out a cigarette because they just don't care or they don't believe you i feel like that's even more horrifying than being told we don't believe you because in that person's behavior and the paramedics behavior they basically shut you down and didn't even have the cojones right like they didn't even have the guts to tell you you we don't believe you there's like oh she's drunk let's just this is break time for us now and that's that's so disheartening especially when you're going through something so traumatic that the first person you meet that's supposed to help you just doesn't care. And then to be continuously shot down by every person you come into contact with, I mean, man, you are you're a tough cookie. I am so inspired by you. So thank you for <laughs> doing what you're doing and changing the legislation. Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate it. And thank you for what you're doing. Spreading the word is definitely 
without a doubt, very, very important. Thank you very much. But it's people like you who are doing the real changes. So thank you. Let's talk a little bit about rape culture in Israel. So I, in the States, rape culture is a mixed bag, right? Little boys grow up being taught, you're not allowed to cry. You have to be tough. So that, that manifests in anger and rage and they don't know how to, you know, reach out. They, they act aggressively. Not all men, you know, I'm not trying to generalize, but basically rape culture is very widely ignored for children and it manifests in aggressive, abusive behavior later. What is Israel's rape culture like? Honestly, I think that when you look at rape culture, I wouldn't necessarily look at the fact that um, men aren't necessarily, sorry, little boys aren't necessarily taught to connect to their feelings and express them in a way that they, that they feel comfortable with. It's also the fact that men and young boys are taught the way women interact are is, is fake or they're playing a game. Uh, when you go on a date with someone and she says no at the beginning, when you try to kiss her, that's just part of the game. Like you, okay, so, so she's playing hard to get. I had a guy who told me, and this was when I was, I want to say 22 or 23. He was 32, I think, um, or maybe 31. He told me there isn't a woman who doesn't give. There's a man who doesn't know how to take. Sorry, it's a rough translation from Hebrew. But the point was, there's no such thing a woman who isn't willing to sleep with you. It's a matter of, are you a man who doesn't know how to take it? And I was horrified because, A, this was four years ago, five years ago. And that was a statement that he saw no problem in saying. And the bigger problem was that it's a sentence that he's heard from other people as well. And it's, it's other men who feel this way as well. So there's very much that culture of, um, you know, did you nail her? No, did you get in her pants? Did you play hard again? And, and that's something that's still very, very present and very, very common. And I think that's the bigger problem where you're teaching men that they should read the signs that the women are giving in the wrong way. And honestly, I'm not disregarding women's part in this also. Women are also taught, don't give in immediately. Can't sleep with a guy on the first date. That turns you into a tramp. There's nothing wrong with sleeping with a guy on your first date if you want to. And if he wants to, and if you both are supportive and respectful and connecting and present in the moment. But like when it comes to the interactions in between men and women, I feel like we're still teaching these hundred-year-old rules of how to do things. And there's something very, very lacking in, okay, we're all much more developed and connected to our emotions and to uh, complexities of life. And don't talk with your friends, with, especially when you see a group of male friends. Don't talk with your group of male friends about um, uh, that woman's ass or how sexy she is or the fact that everyone has um, gotten a piece of her. And that's something that for some reason isn't, you know, and I don't know if I'm generalizing here and I don't want to, but it's something very possessive and, and, uh, and it's aggressive. And unfortunately, it still is something that you hear in conversations. I think people feel less common, uh, comfortable about making these comments now in the presence of women, which sometimes they used to do more, but it still might happen between a group of men 
you know, in a Facebook group, in a WhatsApp group. I had a friend who told me a few, uh, like two or three years ago that she found that there's this Facebook group that men post naked women, uh, pictures of naked women that are sent to them, whether it's by their girlfriends or by one night stands or um, that they find online. And it's disgusting. (laughs) Whether it's a woman who sent you a picture of her naked by choice that's fine, but then you're taking it and sharing it with a group of other people who have absolutely no rights to it. And so there's something very much in the culture itself, I would say, that is a little more than a little problematic, a lot problematic. And then there's also, and this I I can't emphasize enough, the system that doesn't take care of it as they should. For example, a few days ago, there was a case of a man who attacked his wife and beat her up and stabbed her he was horrible and like he, he was really um, taking out all of his anger and, and aggression on her in the worst possible way in front of the one and a half year old. And the judge decided that he doesn't want to release the name of the man because he doesn't want to, and these are his words, hurt his reputation. Now, this is a man who ruined his own reputation within a couple of hours by beating up and stabbing his wife in front of his child. And the judge doesn't want to release his name because he's trying to protect his reputation. I just had a horrible, a horrible flashback to Brock Turner. Did you guys hear about that case at all? Yeah, I mean, things travel. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like Brock Turner. Oh, well, we don't want to ruin his life. He already ruined his life when he, you know, stabbed his wife. Brock Turner ruined his life when he took a, an unconscious girl and raped her behind a garbage can. Like, that was an action that determines and defines the person's personality. Exactly. But for some reason, when it comes to um, sexual assault or, or rape, there's much more room for temporary insanity. It seems that people don't like to claim temporary insanity, except for when it comes to these cases. And it's like, oh, no, he wasn't thinking. He was under the influence of alcohol. Like, if he was driving drunk and killed someone, you wouldn't treat it that way. But when it comes to sexual assault or rape, oh, no, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable. It, it happens sometimes. It's, it's very dismissive. And when the system that is supposed to protect you is dismissive, um, you can't really expect other people to act other ways. I'm so glad that you brought that up. When I lived in Israel, I lived in Herzliya. And so we would go to Petuach, to Herzliya Petuach, uh, Uh and go out to, you know, clubs and bars and whatever. And I noticed that guys, like you had mentioned before, were so much more willing to come up right behind me, put their hands on my waist, and pull me into them to dance on me, even if I didn't know them. And, And when I would try and, you know, get away from them or move and be kind of polite about it. There was really no change, right? They just pull me back in. Right, because you're playing the game. You're, you're not supposed to give in immediately. Right. And, and I didn't, I mean, coming from America, I didn't know that. So I learned very quickly that the only way, at least in 2010, the only way to get them off you was to elbow them really hard in the ribs. And if I didn't <laughs> elbow them really hard in the ribs, they would keep pulling me back in. So, I mean, it makes so much sense now that you said it like that, that it's a game, you know, oh, I'm supposed to pull away because I really want to dance with you when that's not truly the case. And that, that element of consent doesn't really matter. Right. For some reason we don't, and, and I think this is really a huge lacking. We don't teach enough respect for 
Well, I think it goes both ways. Men aren't taught enough respect when you hear a no because they're taught they're playing a game and women aren't taught enough don't play it hard to get. Be straightforward about what you want. There's nothing wrong with, with uh, choosing this way or the other way, but be straightforward about it. Don't play games. Yes, absolutely. So let's move on to around 2018, right? The Me Too movement happened here and it it spread really fast around the world, right? You guys felt the Me Too movement by you, right? Definitely, yes. That was uh, global. So did anything change after 2018? Like anything- Yeah, so actually, um, speaking of uh, the system that's supposed to protect you, so um, another article that I participated in was after Me Too got really, really strong, um, there was this huge uh, social movement that came from Facebook where people started sharing their Me Too stories, which happened also in the States, I know. And then in Israel, there was also a the, Me Too, as in I was also assaulted or attacked in whatever way it was. And then there was also, I turned to the system for help and I was turned away. And then they uh, they did a uh, front page article on one of the, on Ynet. It's one of, um, yeah, the other Haranot, it's one of the leading newspapers in Israel. We were front page spread. They brought six of us to interview about it was really because of the Me Too. Uh, you were attacked, you complained, and then you were turned away. And they did a, a huge spread of like four or five pages in the, in the weekend newspaper, centerfold about really the six of us who came, complained, gave testimony, and then were turned away and were, had our backs, had the system back, turned their back on us. And um, that was also a huge thing that Me Too did here, which was um, positive in in the sense of shedding more light on the way the police and the hospitals and the court system acts in regards to um, sexual assault victims. So there was also a change in regards to sharing stories of what happened and also a change in regards to how was I treated by the system? How did the police treat me? How did hospitals treat me? How did uh, the court system treat me? That started really, I would say, also in 2018, and it's only been getting stronger. And specifically now, due to the case in uh, Eilat, really, it got much stronger. The, the volume in which people are crying out and sharing their side has risen immensely. So let's talk about that. I'm really glad that things are getting better there, or at least the protocols are tightening up a little bit so that survivors feel more supported. We're still fighting that battle here too, but I feel like we are a little bit further along than Israel might be. I don't know if that's rude to say. I didn't mean it in that way. No, it's, it's probably fair. I would say the the social awareness has gotten higher. I don't know that the actual system has gotten much better, uh, but we're working on that as well. Definitely, we're working on that. Good, because that's so important. So let's talk about what happened this year. So this is how I heard it, and I I could be wrong, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but the Mm -hmm. story that we were told was that there was a girl in a lot who was gang raped, and that was it. That's all we got. So I don't know what happened after as far as her healing, but then it's telling us that the the rape culture in Israel was being overturned and there was like a lot of people that were painting over misogynistic phrases and pictures and statues or whatever 
things that were around Israel that were misogynistic were being taken down. Is that accurate? So actually, I didn't hear the side of, of taking down things that have to do with Israel. Um, sorry about that. What happened was, and I have to say, it was a bit of a mess because um, also here, information was released in pieces. And the information at the beginning was vague, to say the least. But it started by, there was a gang rape, a 16-year-old girl with 30 men. And that's oh what God. most people heard. Exactly. Now, that's what's going on. And for about a week, that's what was on the uh, headlines of every single newspaper and every single um, uh, news article out there. A 16-year-old girl was raped by 30 men. And then, you know, the next day they said, oh, it wasn't men. It was some men and some young boys. And they started trying to understand exactly what was going on. But for about a week, we thought it was really 30 men. And what you saw all over Facebook was people crying out. How is this possible? This is a sign of lacking for us as a people. Culturally, we did something wrong if we reached a point where a 16-year-old girl is in a lot and is raped by 30 men. And it was really cries of outrage from every single corner. And then about a week later, it was released, oh, it wasn't 30 men, it was 10 or about 10. And then that was, I mean, i sorry, it's, it's all horrible, it's all awful. When I say interesting, I don't mean in another positive way. But then there was a very um, interesting change where suddenly you saw some people writing, oh, it's only 10 men. Not that it's good, but it's not 30. And then you saw other people who came out with declarations of, to you who said, the difference between 30 and the difference between 10 is meaningful, you're part of the problem because yeah. it doesn't, exactly. And like the, that really brought up even uh, actually a larger wave of awareness because they said it doesn't matter if it's 30 or if it's 10. It shouldn't be one to begin with. And yes, if we're looking at gang rape in this sense, it's horrible no matter what. And there were so many cries of outrage and people really started posting about it. And there were a bunch of different um, socialites, whether it's actors, singers, or different uh, relevant social uh, um, entities that came out with their own videos saying it was men. This was actually, there was two of them that came out. They were very, very powerful, where they talked about what you hear as a man in your background. Now, what does that mean about you as a person if you actually listen to those people who are telling you, no, did you, did you nail her? Did you... How far did she go? She says, no, what, then don't listen, try harder. Like it was, it was very, it was done very, very well and very powerfully. And they said, it's our responsibility. It's my responsibility. And these men who are public figures and, and very meaningful in the uh, cultural life in Israel came out and said, it's my job to change this. It's your job to change this. What's going on here is something that has to do with us as a people. And it's, a horrible sign of our culture, and we have to make the changes on a personal level. So it was very, very negative, and it brought out the very, very um, positive and fruitful results in how people reacted to it. Unfortunately, we just had this case a few days ago where a man stabbed his wife. So I'll bet that that's not the first time that he has been aggressive or violent to her. In fact, I'd bet my life on it because stuff like that's a pattern that grows and grows and perpetrator grows. Perpetrator is a perpetrator. Definitely. Right, exactly. This was just the final straw. This was the most recent explosion of a, in a series of explosions. 
So I'm looking at an article. It's from November 2019. So it's a little bit old and it's before all of this social media hype. But it said that there's a 90 percent oh, of rape cases in Israel are closed without indictment and that the numbers of people turning to rape crisis centers for assistance has increased by 40% in the last five years. And it's saying that the number of calls or complaints filed to rape crisis centers in 2018 was 51,000 and it was 40,000 in 2013. So do you think as, as an Israeli, do you think that is because everything is starting to put itself together and processes and protocols are being put in place? Or do you think it's because it's happening more? Um, I think it's because people feel more um, supported to share what happened to them meaning it's not necessarily things that are happening more, but rather cases that in the past weren't necessarily brought to light are now being brought to light. So I have a friend who, due to what happened in Eilat, decided that she's uh, sick and tired of the way things are being dealt with when it comes to sexual assault and, um, and rape in Israel. And she started posting her personal stories. And she said, I'm going to start with the story that um, most people know about me, that I was raped um, when I was 14 by someone who was 21 at the time. And uh, she came to the police and uh, complained about it, I guess, nine years later. And uh, the police closed her case because they, uh, after researching and looking into the details, they declared that, that she didn't really know that she was underage and it wasn't done through malice. And she proves, and then this is something that she brought out through Facebook, she proves how they knew, he knew that she was 14 because she told him specifically in these messages, they met in a chat room, and he had no problem with going out with her when she was 14 and doing what he did. And so that was the first story she told. And then she started sharing other stories that happened to her about the fact that when she was a teenager, she used to babysit for um, this family. And after a while, her parents were going through a divorce. So she was going through a bit of a hard time personally. Uh, and she liked spending time with this couple who she would babysit their children when they were out. At some point, she said they started coming home a little bit earlier and we just hang started hanging out, the three of us. And then at some point, the husband would invite friends over and he she started hanging out with this group of uh, friends. I'll remind you, she's 15 at the time, babysitting his children, and he's around 30 years old. And she said that apparently it started becoming a thing that they would invite her to join when they would hang out as a group of friends. And then she was invited by just one of them to hang out and... Uh, and they ended up sleeping together and then she was invited by another one. and it became this thing that they sort of sorry for the terminology were passing her around and and none of them at any point thought there's a problem here that she's a 15 year old girl now she as i mentioned her parents were going through divorce it was a hard time she felt that she was getting attention and she felt that she was loved and she said like on the one hand she she didn't understand really why they're treating her like an adult fully but on the other hand she felt very grown up because they were treating her like an adult and at some point one of the wives found out what was going on and, and had a hissy fit at her husband and and uh, 
caused everything to blow up, thank God, and they stopped doing this. And then she started revealing, though, all of these other cases. And she has, like, these nine different stories of men who took advantage of her. Um, one of them who came to pick her up for a date, and they were in the car alone, and he raped her. Another guy who um, was her neighbor, and uh, she had a mouse in her house, and she was scared, so she asked if she could stay there while um, I think the exterminator was supposed to come. And then uh, when his girlfriend was in the shower, he walked over and grabbed her vest. And there's so many stories that she's just revealing because she says, I'm sick and tired of the fact that people don't tell their stories or people behave this way and the system keeps turning our back on it. They're back on us. Um, and that's also something that you see happening more. People feeling socially comfortable to share their stories because even if the police aren't fully um, doing their job or the court system isn't fully doing its job, they are getting social support. And this rape um, victim from Elat, um, a different friend of mine, started a fundraiser for her for legal aid um, due to this. And they reached their goal of, I think, half a million within... 24 hours. And then for this woman who was just stabbed by her husband, uh, a different friend started for her also a fund for legal support and they reached their goal of a million, I think also within like three days. So you see socially there's much more support and much more um, being done. And the system, it's a bureaucratic system that's a little difficult to change, but I, I, do, I do believe that it's slowly, slowly going to get better. That's incredible. Well, you're making amazing strides and the people who you're working with and your friends are also doing such incredible things. I mean, thank you guys for your hard work. And I know it can't be easy. You're basically fighting the empire, right? You're fighting the head honchos, but you guys are doing such incredible work. So thank you and just keep fighting, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you as well. Marissa, you um, are helping to, to also share and put out the voices and the information. And I mean, yes, we're all doing this together and it's our pleasure to try and make the world actually a better place. So my last question for you, I ask everyone who comes on this show, what advice would you give to survivors who are going through the healing process or who are trying to get help and break their silence after sexual assault? Um, wow, that's a good one. So, um, I mean, look, it's, it's sad to say, but sexual assault is not a new thing or, or something that like I, my case of being drugged, that wasn't the first time something like that happened to me. I mean, the numerous cases throughout all of my years, starting from when I was five years old, that I've been experiencing things like this. But when something comes that really breaks you and kills a piece of your soul, which is completely and totally what I felt, it's the small achievements that sort of wow you. I remember thinking um, at the time when I was, again, completely and totally depressed, hardly getting out of bed, I quit my jobs, stopped university, even though I was right in the middle and doing really well. The fact that I got out of bed at four o'clock in the afternoon was like, wow, look at that. And the fact that a Sunday would come by or a new weekend would arrive, I'd be like, whoa, I didn't think, I, like, it's, it's not even that I didn't think I would, live but in a way I didn't think I would live to see another Sunday and I really needed something to 
to hold on to that was more meaningful than, you know, it's going to be okay, because I knew it was going to be okay. And one day I was going to be past it, but I was having trouble seeing how that would ever happen. Um, so I needed something more feasible. And I, one night it was like four o'clock in the morning, which also was something that happened. I would spend most of my waking hours at night when the rest of the world was asleep, because then I felt most safe and most uh, at peace, somewhat at peace with a quiet world. So I went into my bedroom and I started writing on the wall my wish list. And it was my list of the wishes that I want to complete at some point in order to, I guess, make myself happy. It wasn't even happy because be happy was the first thing on the list. So, um, so it wasn't even be happy, but it was these small goals that I I, I was hoping I could achieve in, in the next, you know, foreseeable future, and that I, I I felt could help me pull myself out of the boat, out of the hole that I was in. So you know, it was the first one, as I said, was be happy. The second one was breathe easily again, and then it also went into other things that were whether they were um, they developed due to what I was going through um, with eating disorders that went completely and totally out of hand. And so I had really, as one of my wishes, eat without guilt or stop throwing up. And I also had things like be a positive change in society, um, not let my own feelings about what people expect of me dictate who I'm going to be. So there were some really big things there, but there were also little things like dream sweet dreams again. And what's amazing, and still to this day, I, I love looking at that wall it's still relevant. And there are times in my life that I looked at it and I said, wow, I completed it. And there were times that I said, no, I'm not there yet. Even though last time I looked at it, I felt like I completed most of the things I put on that list. But it's interesting to see how things that were very much relevant then meet me in a very different place now. And I'll, I want to say more positively relevant because then it was really from a hard place of smile again or wake up in a good mood and now it's from a much calmer and more settled place so I guess what I would give us as advice is set small goals and large ones and really aim to achieve them whether it's in a month or in a year but I found that setting those small goals in a time frame that is not, you know, one day I'll be happy, but rather much more um, current day helps to achieve them, to succeed. I love that. Oh my gosh. I challenge anybody listening to this episode to make your own list of things that'll make you happy or things that you want to overcome and put it somewhere like on your wall next to your bed or on the mirror in your bathroom so you can see it every day and right where you are. Oh my gosh, Tiferet, that was incredible. Thank you so, so much for everything you're doing and for being here and supporting survivors all over the world. My you are pleasure. Truly. Thank you, Marissa. Really, of it's a pleasure. Course. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, you have to check out www.marissafaycohen.com backslash private dash coaching. That's www.marissafaycohen.com backslash private dash coaching. Marissa would love to develop a made for you healing plan to heal from emotional abuse. She does all the work and you just show up. Stop feeling stuck, alone, and hurt and live a free, confident, and peaceful life. Don't forget to subscribe to the Healing from Emotional Abuse podcast and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Marissa F. Cohen and Instagram at marissa.fay.cohen. We'd love to see you there.